Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. Today we're talking about innovation for the animal kingdom, from low-tech designs to high-tech inventions. We're kicking off the conversation with a focus on Emily and Ruth, the two Asian elephants at the Buddenwood Park Zoo in New Bedford. They're benefiting from designs coming out of mass art. Joining me to talk about this are Dr. William Langbauer and Rick Brown. Dr. Langbauer is an elephant specialist and the director of the Buddenwood Park Zoo. Rick Brown is a professor at Mass Art. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Callie. Love to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, Dr. Langbauer, I'm going to start with you. And uh, because I think uh, to get the story of, of uh, Ruth and Emily, we need to know something about elephants in general. Right. Uh, and I think I didn't realize, a, I, I think I only was thinking about African elephants, but these are Asian elephants. Correct. Uh, so tell yeah. us about the difference. Well, there's they're very similar. I mean, they're, they're both big animals with gigantic noses. Um, one lives in Asia, one lives in Africa. African elephants have an ear that's actually shaped like Africa. They have the bigger ears. That's how it, uh, it's easiest to tell them apart. Uh, Asian elephants are, uh, have smaller ears. They have a rounder back. Um, the big difference between them, I found, is personality. Mm. Um, if you're in a barn with, with all African elephants, it's, it's sort of like being in a room with uh, ADHD kids. They're really, nerv- they're really smart, really nervous, really ready to go. Uh, but there's this sort of nervous tension all over the place. If you're in a barn with, with Asian elephants, it's, it's really, you know, like being in a barn with Buddhist monks. They're they're <laughs> real. They're much more calm and much more tranquil. And and Emily and Ruth are are some of the calmest and most tranquil elephants I've ever met. Uh, now, can both kinds of elephants grow the horns, the tusks? Yeah, uh. yeah. You'll find tusks on uh, on on Asian uh, bulls a lot. Mm. Uh, most of the females are tuskless, and that's probably due to poaching. There's mm. actually a lot of, uh, of of male elephants in Asia too who are. Uh, Tuskless, and that's because the ones with tusks ended up in, uh, you know, that's uh, you know stamps in, in China or something. Well, the reason I ask that is because when I think about elephants, it's really around the poaching issue. When you yep. think about elephants in the news, uh, and we've been led to believe those of us who don't know much about elephants is that they're they're smaller in number than they used to be, and they're in fact all endangered. Are the Asian elephants more endangered than the others? Oh, much more. The African elephants are probably at least half a million of them left, and they're actually parts of Africa where there are too many elephants. Mm. And so they have to either move them or tranquilize them or kill them, which is really sad. Uh, Asian elephants are only maybe 30,000 left in the world, and that includes those that are in zoos. So that's uh, just by having two elephants at our zoo, we're contributing to elephant conservation. That's a, a sizable part of their you know, uh, percentage of the remaining elephants left. So how did Emily and Ruth, your two Asian elephants, come to be in the Buttonwood Park Zoo? Well, Emily's been there for like 40 years. There are people who bring their grandkids to see the same elephant that they saw. In fact, I saw somebody the other day who brought their great-grandkid to see somebody who saw, uh, to see Emily, that same as she saw when she was a kid. Wow. Um, uh, so she's been there for, except for one uh, small uh uh, sort of segue where she she left for Baton Rouge. She, she was originally housed in the bison barn, mm. and she grew and the barn didn't. Mm. So we had to build a new facility for her. And during that time, we sent her off to to Baton Rouge. And then she, the city of New Bedford, had a big fundraising thing and brought her back. It was is quite wonderful. Uh, uh, so she's been there forever. People, you know, grew up with her. I keep hearing stories about when she used to go to Dunkin' Donuts. They'd, <laughs> they'd take her on a walk outside the park, and they'd go to Dunkin' Donuts and pick up donuts and come back to the park. We don't do that anymore because, uh, you know, lawyers rule the world. But uh, uh, but it was, a, it's, you know, something that's in New Bedford lore now. Uh, Ruthie is, is even a... a, a it's a story that you wouldn't believe if, if I think if it was on a made-for-TV movie or anything. Uh, she was found abandoned in a trailer in a trash dump in Danvers. Wow. She was um, emaciated. She was covered with sores. Her trunk is still partially paralyzed from, uh, from her time then. Uh, she was surrounded by dead and dying animals. And at that time, she was so scared of people that if she was as close as you or I was, she mm. tried to hit me, which mm. would kill me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, but... Due to uh, Bill Sampson, who's our head, uh, our elephant manager and head keeper there, and our other uh, wonderful elephant crew, 
uh, through their patience and kindness. Emily, I mean, Ruthie is now one of the sweetest elephants I know. She's like a lap elephant. If you had a lap big enough, she'd crawl into it. <laughs> um, but I have to, I have to, to, to put the sort of the, the codicil to that is that that's for people she knows. She's still a, a, a you know, wild animal and, and very dangerous to go around if you don't know her. So if you're just a zoo visitor, stay away from her. But, but for the staff, she's, you know, I was in there the other day. Uh, well, last time Rick was there, I mean, we were all in, in with the elephants and Emily and Ruth both gave me big hugs and, and then Ruthie stood and hold, held my hand while I talked to the students. So. Well, what was she doing in Danvers in this horrible state? She was uh, part of a traveling menagerie mm-hmm. that uh, was shut down by the uh, U.S. Department of the Interior and the Animal Rescue League of Boston. Uh, she was confiscated by the feds, uh, and her owner stole her back. <laughs> Oh. Which and and uh, put her in the and he stole back all his animals from in this trailer and I guess was making a run for it when it you know the heat got too close and he just left them. This is similar to what happened in Ohio and Cincinnati. We heard about the woman with the the animals and then they were all in bad shape and then they came and took them and now she got them back. Uh. Yeah, that's a little <clears> bit <throat> different. That was actually uh, Ohio's awful because there are no laws about keeping exotic animals. I used to work at the Pittsburgh Zoo and we were always being called to ask to care for animals that people who really love animals mm-hmm. but don't know how to take care of them, you know, like feed them Twinkies because they love Twinkies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, uh, so that, that's slightly different. There's, okay. a, there's a crazy guy and he let, he committed suicide, let all his animals free beforehand. And, uh, so yeah, they gave them back to the, to the, his wife. So when you, when she was found in, yep. <clears throat> uh, my guest is Dr. William Langbauer. He's the director of the Buttonwood Park Zoo and is home to two Asian elephants. And we're talking about them, Emily and Ruth. Um, so when she was found in Danvers in this horrible state, how did it, how did she end up with you in the end at the Buttonwood Park? Well, she only ended, she was, uh, I'm not quite sure of how her journey went to us. I think Mm -hmm. she stayed at, um, at the Franklin Park Zoo for a little while, but she's, she was put with us supposedly just temporarily, but we were doing such a good job with her that, that we ended up keeping her. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now here's a question before I move over to my other guest, uh, Mr. Rick Brown, and that we hear about smart animals, mm-hmm. and the ones that are usually brought to mind are dolphins and chimpanzees. Are elephants smart? Oh yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah, we, uh, the, I, I can give you some. I'll, I'll give you some scientific evidence, and then I'll give you some um, some anecdotal evidence. Okay. Okay, but uh, you know, you hear elephants never forget. And that's really true. There's uh, a guy named uh, uh, Rentsch who was a uh, a German uh, psychologist back in the 50s who who taught elephants to memorize 50 no 100 pairs of of symbols. And like there'd be a circle and a square, it'd be one pair, and a straight line and a wavy line would be another pair, and a triangle and an oval would be a third pair like that. And one of the in within each pair, if they touched it, they'd get a reward. If they touched the other one, they wouldn't. Okay, and within the space of a couple of weeks, they memorized that so they could do it like ninety-seven percent right. You know, they would just no matter what order you put these these pairs in, they would know which was the right one. They memorized the the the, the positive reinforcer in each one, uh, which is you know I don't know if I could do that. It's, <laughs> it reminds me of college trying to cram for you know memorizing something, um, but that's so that's impressive enough. He came back five years later, without them ever seeing these things again, gave them the same test, they're still like 95% correct. Wow. Which is, is yeah, it's, it, it blows your socks off. Uh, but it, but the anecdotes are even cooler because um, uh, elephants lie, amongst other things. <laughs> really? Um, How yeah. have they lied to you, Dr. Langman? Well, there are, there are a couple of things. And, and call me Dr. Bill or Bill or something. <laughs> I, if I call me Dr. Langbar, I think I'm going to have to take out your appendix or something. Um, uh well, there are a couple of things that our elephants do. One, which I had to warn Rick and his students about, is they pretend their trunks are shorter than they are. If you, uh, you know, if you're carrying an expensive camera or something, and you put it down uh, outside their enclosure, they'll reach their trunk for it and they'll look like they're really trying to get it. They can't quite get it, so you think it's fine, and you walk off, and all of a sudden their trunk is two feet longer, and they have your stuff. Okay, and and Emily, one of our elephants. Um, uh, sort of a, a, a different way of how they lie. One of our elephants um, uh, likes to drum on, on on the door and stuff, and so she's often over by our big uh, door, which to get in and out of, of her barn, which is a door that can be 
opened and closed by me, who is not the strongest person in the world. And, uh, you know, Bill Sampson will sometimes say, okay, Emily, shut the door. And sometimes she'll do it right away. And other times she'll put her head on it and, honest to God, look like she's straining as hard as she can and can't move it. <laughs> and then Bill will go, like, move it six inches, like, with his forefinger and say, okay, come on, keep doing it. And But, you know, when she wants to lie, she lies. <laughs> So they definitely have personalities. They do. Yeah. All right. So Dr. Langbauer, as I uh, move over to my other guest here, Rick Brown, who's a professor at Mass Art, please tell us how you came to be connected with uh, Rick Brown at Mass Art. Uh, it was through Vicki Croak and Kristen Gogan. Vicki Croak is a as a author. She wrote The Lady in the Panda and a bunch of other things you might have heard of on, on NPR, uh, who gave a talk at the zoo once and ended up, uh, she also wrote a book called The Modern Ark, which is about, uh, you know, modern zoos. And she's not 100% a fan of zoos, but she ended up liking our zoo quite a bit and liking our elephants quite a bit. And one of her colleagues, Kristen Gogan, who's a videographer, um, actually went to Mass Art. And through through Vicky and Kristen, we got hooked up with Rick. And uh, and I think it's one of the coolest things we've done in, in years and years and years. His Rick and his students are just awesome. All right. Uh, Rick Brown, uh, professor at Mass uh, Art. You're not an elephant expert, or maybe you are now, and <laughs> maybe your students are, <laughs> uh, but you were brought in to work with the Buttonwood Park Zoo to do what? Tell us about it. Well, the, uh, the, the, uh, Vicki contacted a, a, a professor uh, at Mass Art and uh, asked if there was a student that might want to design toys for elephants. And so this professor called me and, and presented the problem to me. And so, in Wait, a, stop. Why did she think that elephants needed toys? Well, uh, this is something we discovered after the fact, but this is part of the, our learning process. What we learned was is that uh, animals, you know, in captivity are well, need enrichment. It's a, it's a topic yeah. among among scientists to find ways to enhance the quality of life for animals in captivity. So, uh, so the idea of designing toys was a perfect you know, design prob problem for art students. And so I suggested, why don't we not have just students just do that? Why don't we turn this into a full fledged design class? which we did two years ago, and yep. since that time now we've had uh, two classes to do the project. Yeah, Kelly, if, they, if the animals don't have Rick's toys, I mean, Emily in particular takes apart her exhibit. She mm. will unscrew bolts, and uh, one of the toys which uh, Rick's students came up with uh, last year was uh, just a series of bells that had clappers that were specifically designed so that she couldn't take them off. Mm. She had the first one off in 15 minutes, and, the, and within a day... Clappers on all of them were off, totally undamaged. She had just learned how to disconnect them, reaching her trunk way up in these things that she could barely reach. And it was uh, – uh, so Rick is doing us a, a big service not only in keeping our, uh, our elephants uh, enriched but in keeping our exhibit in one piece. Well, what I think is interesting is the name of the class is Toys for Elephants. <laughs> so you're a student at Mass Art and you're looking in the catalog and you think – Hmm. Toys for elephants? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. That's, uh, basically, I, I don't have to put it in the catalog. I just put a picture of an elephant up and said, you know, called it Toys for Elephants. How would you like to do this class? And people were standing in line. Um, and was it that it was a, a combination of a design and, um, and an artistic flair that had to be provided there if you're a mass art student that was appealing? I think, I think students were attracted just to the idea of designing toys for elephants and, and not knowing uh, fully what kind of uh, class they would be signing up for. But uh, basically, it's a problem-solving class, and uh, I, I like to teach uh, non-traditional classes, um, and you so, think? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think so, so. So this is this is this is a perfect match. Uh, and so, um, you know, basically the students, what they do is that they once they realize that they're design. This is a real world problem. You know, this is uh, trying to help the elephants is, is something that's uh, a real challenge. And so again, I like the idea of classes having a kind of a high stakes. It's a high stakes game. And so the, uh, the once the students met Emily and Ruth, they were hooked. They just fell in love with them. And they took the project and the design problem real serious. And so. All right. Uh, well, what kind of toys did the students at Mass Art make for Emily and Ruth? And how did the process go? And um, what did Emily and Ruth do with the toys after they 
got them. We'll talk about all of that coming up. We're talking about innovation for the animal kingdom with a focus on elephants and what keeps them stimulated and happy. I'm joined by elephant specialist Dr. William Langbauer. He's the director of the Buttonwood Park Zoo, home to two Asian elephants, Emily and Ruth. Rick Brown is also with us. He's a professor at MassArt, where students are designing toys for elephants. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you and one SIM card, mobile voice, text, and data service for budget-conscious international travelers. One SIM card lets you manage the expense of using your cell phone while traveling in over 200 countries without any commitments. Online at onesimcard.com. And Goddard House in Brookline, featuring their new Bed, Breakfast, and Beyond program, a two-, three-, or four-week stay without a long-term commitment. You can be safe and secure in assisted living and enjoy the comforts of a country inn. GoddardHouse.org and the growing number of WGBH sustainers who manage their contributions to public radio with the help of monthly installments and automatic renewals. Learn more about the ease of sustaining membership at WGBH.org. PRI's The World brings you more than just the day's news. My uncle has a saying, he still lives in El Salvador. He says, when the United States gets a cold in El Salvador, we get pneumonia. We introduce you to people around the globe. Right now, we're accepting all members uh, throughout the world to be Canucks. We're actually running a feature in the paper called Canucks All Over the World. and we Join us and hear the world. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH. This summer... You'll count on public radio to keep you connected to stories like this. With Mitt Romney all but certain to be the party's nominee, many voters... President Obama is rolling out an economic message that's squarely aimed at college students. Athletes, journalists, and fans are getting ready to converge on London. Help 89.7 get to the stories you care about and give a little bit more in support of a lot more coverage. To go above and beyond with an additional gift, just click the Donate button at WGBH.org. Context beyond the headlines. Issues you want to know more about. Stories you'll want to share. News and depth. Online at WGBHnews.org. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just joining us, we're talking about innovation in the animal kingdom. We're talking about elephants with Dr. William Langbauer, a leading elephant expert and director of the Buttonwood Park Zoo in New Bedford. And also with us is Rick Brown, a professor at MassArt, where his students have been designing toys for elephants. So back to you, Rick Brown. Uh, students were lining up to make toys for elephants. You've had the class now uh, for a couple of uh, years. And how did you begin to approach the task? I mean, I know you go look at Emily and Ruth and try to get a sense of how they interact. But beyond that, how, how would you begin making a toy for an elephant? Uh, the, uh, the first thing we do is we, uh, we're doing research to understand uh, the animal's behavior. And so one of the first things we did was we looked at videos of animals in, in the wild, and uh, and so that was that was that was helpful, and then we also uh, spent time at the zoo uh, with Dr. Bill and Bill Sampson and the other uh, keepers, and they gave uh, a lot of information, very uh, important information from their experience of how the animals act in, in captivity. What were the key things that you really had to pay attention to? Well, well, the uh, well, one of the things that uh, uh, they would tell us is is that the with the elephants, uh, the, the first thing that they do when they see something out, that's out of uh, the normal day, they, they, would, um, they would try to eat it. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, then what they do is uh, they'll, they'll play with it, uh, and then uh, eventually they'll want to break it. And so now this is a perfect set of circumstances for our art students to want to – it's just a real challenge for them. I bet. So, um, so after we uh, went through this, this preliminary uh, – understanding, then we go back and do uh, designs and then design development. So they're really trying to figure out how to make 
toys that are going to satisfy the you know these needs of the elephants, and the, and they become so uh, enamored by the personalities of these two elephants. I mean, it, so they're they're really designing specifically for Emily and Ruth, their needs, their own unique characteristics. Mm-hmm. So give uh, me an example of, for example, what might work for, as a toy for Emily and perhaps not for Ruth, and vice versa. Well, first of all, uh, Ruth uh, ha- she likes to uh, futz her with uh, n- the nuts and bolts. Emily. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Emily, Emily <laughs> likes to fuss her with the nuts and bo- the nuts and bolts. She, again, when given the opportunity, she'll take pull every nut off a very bolt, <laughs> nut and bolt in place. And so they they they, they thought that was a, a good idea to, to work with. Um, then um, Ruth has a partially uh, uh, paralyzed uh, trunk, and so she has a tendency to, to swing the trunk, mm-hmm. and uh, so she has that, that kind of a limitation with what she can reach, uh, and so. They took that into consideration. So, that, in other words, they didn't want to have something that was going to be just for one, and or not. But they both wouldn't have toys. So that that was a special design. They didn't want to have. You didn't want to have to make them share. They could have yeah. their own. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> or, or at least to accommodate their their unique needs. Okay. And, uh, but uh, one of the the uh, big things that they uh, designed for is elephants in in the wild spend 18 hours of the day rummaging for food. They're always mm. trying to find locate their food. So. Uh, a number of the uh, the toys they designed were kind of unique feeders. In other words, they have to kind of find some way to uh, f- find the food, uh, like a puzzle feeder or something they have to roll around and, and reach in and to find the food. So that was that was kind of a design challenge. So and for humans, that would be like packaging. So it's like marketing a new package. I might be attracted to it and find the food inside. Same food, but it's different package. It's, it's different, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so how long did um, and and you're supervising the work, but you're allowing the students to sort of come with their own imaginations about what they think would work. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. This is uh, you know basically after they've been uh, guided by the the zoo. They they go on their own, and uh, what well, I say on their own, they uh, they can work independently. But we also encourage them to work as groups because they are students coming from a wide range of uh, departments within the college. So, you know, we have people who are designers, and we have people who are makers, and then they get get those two together, and they can have a lot of potential in a design build class. So, um, um, and I saw a couple of toys that were made for Emily and Ruth uh, on a video, and they seem to be enjoying them. Something called the the packy something. The packy sack. The packy sack. The yeah. packy sack. <laughs> yeah. Pachyderm, that was cute. <laughs> um, what was the first when you the first set of toys that you made for them? What was the, the animals' response? I mean, we've just heard how they normally respond. When did they figure out? Oh, it's something to play with. Well, I, what we observed is as soon as you put any alien object in their playground, they spot it right away. They go right to mm-hmm. it. There's no. Hesitation. They they know that this is something that's they're going to try to uh, un- discover. Uh, but uh, one was, for example, this this uh, pyramidal box. Yeah, I was had, hoping you'd tell about that one. The pyramidal box has a uh, it's like a three sided pyramid, and it has a uh, this large uh, threaded uh, bolt and, and nut. And uh, so we put it in the in the barn with uh, with Emily, and she very quickly she she actually sort of. Uh, act like she was going to go do something else, so she <laughs> faked out Ruth, and then she went over and started uh, instantly. She curled her trunk so she could twist the, the the nut in the proper direction to remove it. So you know, every time we see the elephants, I'm always amazed how smart they are. But wow. this really, again, just blew my mind. So how long did it take her, Rick, to it, do that? It, it didn't. It, it she you know she again she was kind of exploring. She knew, she could sense there was food inside, so she wasn't going to walk away. <laughs> But it took a few minutes for her to get the, the uh, this nut off the bolt, and, and, but also it was like wrench tight, and she still managed to get that off. But then it was not that simple because the shape of the box, it was a pyramid, th- this flush-fitting door, she had to, in a very subtle way, tip the box up so the door would tip outward, and she huh. figured it out, yep. and it plopped open, and of course then it opens up, and then there's another pyramid inside. Oh, and so it's it like goes a puzzle on. box. For, yeah. It's a puzzle box. But, <laughs> but as soon as the first door opens, some popcorn and some uh, jelly beans fall out. Yep. She, she you know, finishes those off and then goes right about her business you know, trying to get into the second one. Yeah, as I recall, the <laughs> students were worried that she wouldn't be able to figure it out. It took oh. her about 15 minutes to and, have the thing all open and... 
and eaten. And, and and as Dr. Bill yeah. says, once they figured it out, it's 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 a it's a done deal. She's she's she already knows it. So, <laughs> so did so. she then after afterwards? Did she destroy it, or do you just fill it up again and put it back in there? <laughs> yeah, we fill it up again and put it back in there. One mm-hmm. of the things that is sort of key to this whole thing is we have to rotate the toys because it's like, you know, if you any of you guys who have kids, they they want something for Christmas and they want it and they want it and they want it and they want it and they can't live without it. And they get it, they play with it for 15 minutes and that's it. Or they play with the box or something. But then if you take it away and, and give it to them again, you know, in a couple of weeks, it's it's, it's, it's new all again. New and fresh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And that's what we have to do with these guys. You know, they'll get uh, bored with it if it's there all the time. But if we, you know, just sort of rotate them around, you know, you know, rotate what they have available for them, it's, it'll be new and fresh for them every time. Um, for anybody listening, thinking, how does how does Dr. Bill know so much about elephants? I mean, you are a world-renowned elephant expert, I should put out here. I, I was pretty impressed by that you were on a team with people that figured out that an elephant makes a sound that a human can't hear. Yeah. And, of course, my question is, if they can't hear it, how did you hear it? Uh, <laughs> it actually, I have to give all credit to Katie Payne, who is the person who... Uh, who came up with the idea? And I was, again, it's like it's, I, I, at, at, at that stage, I was the technical guy who proved the idea, but it was her idea. And uh, she used to work with whales, mm. and and whales make these very low pitched sounds too. And and I guess she was standing. Uh, Rick just came back from the Oregon Zoo, and that's where we did this original work. We she was standing in front of the elephant exhibit and thought she felt something that she couldn't really hear. And when we brought out the correct uh, equipment, we found out that that yeah. She, Sure enough, if uh, if you sit like a safe distance from an elephant uh, and write down everything you hear and have a tape recorder going at the same time, you'll find that there are uh, you know two to three times as many elephant calls on the tape as what you, than what you heard, mm. but they heard them all. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So now, how, why are you so fascinated with elephants? Because I should say that your whole face is beaming as you're talking about the elephants and then Emily and Ruth. <laughs> I I don't know. I I. I I guess because the, I, I'm, God, this I don't even know where to start. They're they're just they are um, highly social, highly intelligent animals. They give me an excuse to go to Africa. Mm. I'm going to be going in a few months. Uh, my daughter's going to come with me, and that's going to be just just wonderful. Uh, they're um, well, actually, I guess. It goes back to a story or a little piece in the ma- in a magazine that I read when I was uh, just starting to go to college. There's a guy named Conrad Lorenz who had this idea of of umwelts and animals that if you were if you had a mosquito, a dog, and a person in this room, and could see the room through their senses, it would be like being on three different planets hmm. because the 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 subjective experience and and you know their senses are so different. Uh, you know, dogs smell more than they they see. For example, uh, you know, uh, elephants hear better than we do. Uh, so it's really like like being on another planet, and that I always found fascinating. I was always like a big science fiction fan, and I thought this is a way to go to other planets without ever leaving this one. And and elephant. One of the reasons I started with elephants is because I was working with with dolphins and whales before, and the problem with them is that you can't you can't hear what they're saying. Because they're underwater, and you can't see who's saying it because they're they're underwater. So I thought it'd be easier with elephants. And then we find this thing that you can't hear what they're saying, and you don't know who's saying it because you can't hear what they're saying. So it it didn't make things any easier, but it sure was a lot of fun. Uh, it sounds like it, Dr. Brown. Uh, for the students, it's been a lot of fun too, as I've, I've you know reading some of their comments. Uh, many of them excited about doing art that had a, a bigger purpose than which is imminent. It's pretty important to have art that we can all appreciate. The rest of us who can't make it but this has a double whammy if you will oh, yeah, because it. it's, it's a uh, well first of all it's uh you know this this real life challenge and uh also just i think anybody the the, the, the little child in any of us uh the idea of designing for elephants is very attractive and so you know working with uh, dr bill in the zoo and and bringing the art school together it's where science meets the arts it's challenging it's fun it's uh it's something that i think Again, it's attractive to everybody. And I can't tell you how good the students were. I, every, and I'm not exaggerating. Every single idea they came up with was both plausible, 
sometimes were too expensive to do. But if you, mm. we had the money, we would have been able to do it, and would have enriched Emily and Ruth's life. And and these kids were just amazing. They went back to original literature, like Rick was saying on on elephant senses and everything. They were having discussions with me about animal awareness, and they knew about you know Gallup's work with chimpanzees and stuff. Stuff that biology students don't know. And these artists just w were so concerned about getting things right that they, uh, you know, they went the extra mile and, and everything they did w was something that we could have used. So let's talk about the whole concept of enrichment for animals in captivity, because some people could hear that and say, well, see, if they weren't in captivity, they wouldn't yeah. need enrichment. Um, can you respond to that? Uh, yeah, I, I can. Mm -hmm. And that is... Um, you know, one of the things I didn't mention when you asked me why why I'm so interested in elephants is that is that we can really have a conservation impact on elephants. I mean, one of the reasons I left Cornell University, where I was you know working just as a scientist to go to zoos, is that zoos actually do more conservation work than universities do. The Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which we're a part of, is one of the biggest conservation organizations on on the planet, and it turns out that the biggest predictor of whether a kid is going to grow up and have a conservation ethic is if they have an oh wow experience with an animal or with nature when they're young. And uh, I, I'm sure Rick can attest to working with elephants, there's nothing more oh wow than that, especially for urban kids. You bring a, you know, an urban kid in to meet an elephant and you've changed their lives. So um, uh, the mission of zoos really isn't, we're not fuzzy amusement parks. We're, we're conservation uh, organizations. We do it through giving the, the people, uh, the visitors, an oh wow experience as much as we can, turn them into conservationists. We have education programs, which uh, again, we don't teach quantum physics. We teach things about biology and conservation. And we do field work. I mean, as I said, I'm going to Africa mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in a couple of months and going to continue the field work I'm doing there. So uh, animals, the, the 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 mission of zoos is not only to uh, you know to conserve the animals but to give them the best life we can give them and in order to do that we've gone from from the old menagerie style zoo which was like a stamp collection where you'd wanted to have one of as many different animals as you could in small cages so that you could have more animals and you know cages supposedly were easier to clean but uh, now what we try to do is put them in uh, in environments that give them what they need and we know what they need from doing studies in the wild and that's part of what enrichment is some animals uh, for some animals enrichment is uh, is having the right social structure making sure that they have the right companions uh, for other animals you know enrichment is uh, you know puzzles uh, you know elephants in the wild solve problems all the time I was, I was telling Rick that uh, you know one of the big problems in Africa is keeping elephants out of people's croplands, mm. uh, you know, out of people's gardens, because it's not like our garden where we you have a garden just to, so you have some fresh vegetables. For a lot of people in Africa, their garden is what they eat. So if the elephant destroys their garden, their kids go hungry. Mm. Um, and for a while, people were trying to build these expensive electric fences to keep them out, but it didn't work because elephants figured out how to get by them. They would either, you know, they found out that tusks are non-conductive, so they wow. could break them with their tusks. They could use sticks to break them, or in the absence of tusks and, and sticks, they would take the uh, animal in the group that they probably liked the least and just push her right through the fence and then follow behind them. <laughs> <laughs> so elephants aren't necessarily paragons of, vir of virtue. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I think that that um, it's like um, well, I could give that example, but 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 I think the reason I'm in zoos is because we do conservation. Mm, okay. And uh, and but part of that is to is to be good to the animals and make sure they have what they need as from uh, as we know what from watching them in the wild. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at WGBH.org. We're talking about elephants with Dr. William Langbauer, a leading elephant expert and director of the Buttonwood Park Zoo in New Bedford. Also with us is Rick Brown, a professor at Mass Art, where his students have been designing toys for elephants. So, uh, Professor Rick Brown, now your students, I guess, are conservationists as well because they've been so involved in this project. And I understand that there's some thought to expanding this uh, across the country, what you all have been doing in collaboration with the Buttonwood Park Zoo. Yeah, uh, just uh, again, it's uh, with, with our students working with Dr. Bill, when they do this research, because it's not being done anywhere else, it's, it is a form of them becoming very informed and becoming um, 
maybe maybe the the experts in in a, in a funny way on this subject. Uh, they're all very interested in, in this class. They many of them return to the class again. Mm. Uh, what I've what I've uh, talked about even with Dr. Bill since the very beginning is this idea of expanding the program, maybe working with some other zoos and other. Uh, parts of the country and possibly uh, organizing uh, design programs with other art institutions in those same communities where we can turn the project into a national project and have uh, you know a, a greater number of uh, elephant situations to work with, more scientists, and, yep. and then also uh, you know, possibly find uh, more funding like National Science Foundation funding to help with, uh, make the project uh, have some more sources for development. So we've talked about how the toys enrich the elephants' lives. The enrichment for the students in terms of their entire artistic career, because they're not going to go off, most of them, making toys for elephants as a career. They'll be going on to be artists. But I'm wondering how that has enhanced them overall as artists. Well, uh, again, a class like this, is uh, they, they're learning a lot of things. They're learning how to uh, you know, work as a group, Learning how to to collaborate with the community organization, and uh, they're learning how to, to problem solve. So that, so they're basically they're, these are very they're trained to be very skilled problem solvers. So in this case, this is maybe uh, would be considered a very obtuse kind of uh, approach. But they're so they go out in the community. They're fearless. They uh, you you give them a problem, they're they're happy to try to solve it. And uh, so they're, they're learning many things besides just making a toys for elephants. And this is, again, part of, I think, that's, uh, you know, when, we, when one of the first questions that came up the very first year was uh, we were talking about designing toys that also would be, um, you know, attractive to the audience. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so because it's engaging the audience and engaging the community so that they become more interested in elephants and elephant or animal uh, and behavior and animal conservation. needs, yes. conservation, mm-hmm. then that makes it just a more informed public. So, um, you know, so there, so we are, we're designing more than just for the elephants. And, and, and then again, the relationship we have with the zoo now, we have a great relationship and we feel like this, there's uh, ways we can expand the experience and, and make it uh, more educational. And, and so it's been a fantastic uh, relationship between Mass College of Art and, and, uh, and the zoo. Uh, to both of you, and I'll start with you, uh, Rick Brown, since you're speaking, uh, did you ever imagine that a such a low-tech design can be so important, uh, you know, such an important innovation in, you know, animal conservation? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> uh, well, I'm a sculptor. I, I've worked with uh, maybe low-tech designs my entire, entire design career. <laughs> I, I think there's a place for low-tech designs in, in many places in the world, and, and certainly working here at the, at the zoo. And to you, Dr. Bill. Yeah, low-tech is best. Like I said, I've worked in Africa for 30 years, and, and you can think of these, you know, miraculous, uh, you know, technology-heavy solutions to problems, but then they're not sustainable. So the, the, the easier you can make it, the simpler you can make it, the better. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Small's beautiful. Uh, so yeah. we'll have to come and see Emily and Ruth play with their toys, right? Yeah. Please <laughs> do. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, the two of you, for talking about this. Thank We're you. talking about innovation for the animal kingdom, and we've been talking about elephants with Dr. William Langbauer and Rick Brown. Dr. Langbauer is an elephant expert and director of the Buttonwood Zoo, home to Emily and Ruth, two Asian elephants. Rick Brown is a professor at Mass Art, where his students have been designing toys for elephants. We continue the conversation with Saving the Whales. Guess what? There's an app for that. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health.
and direct tire and auto service. Within the last year, I committed a fair share of my marketing budget to WGBH because I know that the station's important to Boston, and I know it works. Barry Steinberg, president. Every day, people mention WGBH, typically in a thank you. And when you hear a lot of those, you know it's working. To learn more, visit wgbh.org sponsorship. On the next Fresh Air, why we're getting fat. One third of Americans are obese, another third are overweight. Kelly Brownell explains why changes in eating habits and our sedentary lifestyles pose serious threats to adults and children. He's one of the experts featured in a new HBO documentary series about obesity called The Weight of a Nation. Join us. This afternoon at 2 here on 89.7 WGBH. For 47 years now, the WGBH Spring Auction has been your chance to pick up some amazing deals. Welcome, welcome at last, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Channel 2 Auction. This year, you can bid on a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealers. Bigger and better than ever. Every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television. If you have stamina and strong eyesight, stay with us. Bid high, bid often, but hurry. The Spring Auction ends May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org. WGBH and 89.7 want to ensure a diverse pool of candidates for all of our employment opportunities. Visit the Careers section of WGBH.org to learn more about the exciting opportunities currently available throughout our organization. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about innovation for the animal kingdom. I'm joined by Patrick Ramage, the Whale Program Director at the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Patrick Ramage, thank you for joining us. Callie, it's good to be with you. So uh, there's an app for saving the whales, as it turns out. Uh, before we get to exactly what this high-tech invention is all about, we need to understand the circumstances um, in which the context in which whales find themselves, and with a particular focus on right whales. So tell us what the story is. Sure. The uh, right whale, like the other species of great whale that swim in waters off the shores of New England, and in oceans and seas around the world, faces more threats today than at any time in history. And that comes as a surprise to many of us uh, who assume that the main challenge to the survival of these species was resolved in the 1970s or 80s when the nations of the world declared a ban on the practice of commercial whaling, or the killing, the uh, directed take, as they uh, say in policy terms, of whales for their meat and blubber and other products, um, has pretty much been arrested now. All but three nations in the world, Japan, Iceland, and Norway, including our own country, the United States, long ago put away the harpoon and, and has ended the practice of commercial whaling. Unfortunately, however, uh, whales today, including the very endangered North Atlantic right whale, with which many of us are familiar here in New England waters, face a wide variety of threats, some of those familiar pollution of the marine environment, um, uh, entanglement in outmoded fishing gear. Uh, some new and unfamiliar underwater noise is affecting the breeding, feeding, and migration habits of these animals. Um, the threats of climate change and ocean acidification, scientists are telling us, are having an impact on these animals and their marine environment, just as they're affecting the terrestrial environment where we spend our time. One of the um, deadliest threats faced by the critically endangered northern right whale, Callie, has been collisions with high-speed large vessels. And that is the uh, challenge uh, that we have focused on at the International Fund for Animal Welfare, together with a coalition of organizations that's been working for some years now to address that threat and harness technology in a way that came up with a solution that would work for mariners on the open water and for the right whale whose habitat and whose own migratory paths put them in, in uh, the direct route of shipping traffic in and outside the port of Boston. So let's talk about their, their habits because, um, you know, I just didn't realize how much they stay in shallow water. So they're usually in or often in heavily trafficked areas. That's right. This is a species um, that back in the heyday of, of Yankee whaling uh, received its name, actually, because it was deemed the right whale to hunt. Uh, 
And uh, that name stuck. And the North Atlantic right whale uh, swims in near inshore waters, um, typically spending a lot of time um, at depths of, of five meters or less, uh, moving slowly, um, uh, sometimes just below the surface of the water. And the um, anatomy of the right whale kind of conspires to make it a, a more difficult target for a mariner to see uh, in that it has no dorsal fin in contrast to some other species. So there's um, nothing above the water to see it. Often nothing above mm. the water mm-hmm. um, that would allow you to, to um, see the animal, even if you were paying um, close attention. Um, and uh, very slow-moving uh, surface feeding um, and uh, unfortunately uh, spends a lot of time up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States from northern Florida uh, up to Newfoundland, seasonal migrations up and down the same corridor, which is a, a focus for a lot of um, commerce and shipping traffic um, vital to our economy here in the New England region um, and up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States. So it really is a, a bit of an obstacle course uh, for these slow-moving, surface-feeding uh, whales moving gently along, sometimes more focused on on feeding and other activities than they are on the shipping traffic, apparently, um, that has posed such a threat uh, to the survival of their species. Over the last decade or so, there's been an average of, of uh, two or more reported uh, collisions uh, with with large vessels and right whales. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're dealing with a population of whales that is hovering right around 400 or 450 animals, the loss of even one breeding female of these species can pose a massive threat to its ultimate survival. So you have a situation where there's a small group of these animals. They're moving slowly. They're in they're faster and faster boats in these heavily trafficked areas. So even if they see the if they were able to respond, they normally move slowly. So then the boat is going to go right over them because they can't get out of the way. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And there have been a series of measures um, over the last decade or so um, designed to address this threat as we've come to better understand it. And um, state and federal officials have collaborated um, with our organization, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, and others uh, from academia, um, uh, from the port authorities and what have you, on a variety, a kind of mosaic of conservation measures uh, for this highly endangered marine mammal, including some voluntary and some mandatory shipping speed restrictions in critical habitat areas at certain seasons of the year, um, some reporting systems where mariners are obliged to report their vessel if it's um, over 300 tons moving into a critical right whale habitat. And the app that you mentioned at the top really is the um, the latest and sort of 21st century approach that not only um, provides a new solution, but makes these important conservation measures like speed restrictions and movement of shipping lanes um, and reporting requirements much more meaningful uh, to the mariner. And this, this app isn't just helping whales, it's helping concerned people on the bridge of a ship actually um, uh, meet their obligations and and uh, be be able to fully implement the regulations that are required of them in a more meaningful way. So here's what's happened. You've uh, given them iPads, because this is very high-tech, and uh, someone designed an app which can uh, literally locate the whales, and so ships can see where they are it, by a, a series of uh, tracking measures. Uh, explain a little bit about that. Sure. The uh, 20th century, uh, until about a month ago, the 20th century uh, system um, involved a situation where a mariner or captain on the bridge of his vessel would receive uh, either facsimile transmissions, if you can believe it, in 2012, Mm. emails, radio transmissions, sometimes even phone calls, um, sharing data and information and coordinates where right whales had been sighted. Um, but that's the, behind. That doesn't even tell you current information. That's where, where they were used to be. In the, exactly. Okay. So the, the National Marine Fisheries Service and the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration um, maintain uh, elaborate networks, uh, including overflights of planes in particular seasons um, to, to spot these whales, um, and uh, networks of uh, mariners who are reporting in and calling in uh, data to try and track where these animals are seen at any given time. 
Um, but as you say, by the time the mariner on the deck of a busy ship with concerns for navigational safety, human safety, um, uh, and whatever other marine hazards uh, they might be contending with, whatever weather, um, by the time they would receive an email or radio or phone call or even facsimile transmission um, that contained coordinates where whales had been seen, they would then be expected to pull out their hard copy charts, kind of plot their position, plot the the uh, position of those whales. Not a very realistic expectation for um, a busy mariner on the deck of the ship. In contrast to that, what the new Whale Alert app provides is really a 21st century solution and a, a marvelous uh, marriage of um, science, uh, technology, uh, and know-how um, to provide a heads-up, gorgeous iPad display of... Um, a, a digital version of nautical charts with all the same detailed information that mariners have come to rely on um, uh, in other formats. Uh, but integrated within that are all of the um, shipping, uh, the shipping lane um, guidance, the speed restrictions when relevant, either seasonally or in what's called a dynamic management area. When whales have been sighted, then certain speed restrictions are imposed um, for a period of time following the sighting of the whale. And all of this in real time is shown to the mariner so they, at a glance, have a sense of, here's where I am, here's where the shipping lanes are, and here's where right whales have been sighted. In the case of uh, Boston Harbor, the entryways into Boston Harbor for these large commercial vessels go across the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, uh, which is just to the south of Cape Cod. And uh, this um, uh, uh, sanctuary is critical habitat for right whales, and the shipping lanes uh, go immediately across that sanctuary area for unavoidably. For that reason, there have, has been some progress over the last three years. Some shipping lanes were narrowed uh, and moved slightly to avoid the highest concentration of, of whales based on years of research. We know where they tend to congregate within the sanctuary. Um, but this is going to make a huge it, difference. <laughs> it, it really yes, should. Yes. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and assist concerned mariners who have no interest in running over right whales. Exactly. Uh, that certainly want, to, certainly want to do their part, but in a way have not had uh, they've been operating, in a sense, blind, not dealing with near real-time information about the location of these animals, and not as able, frankly, to meaningfully implement the regulatory um, requirements that have been imposed on them. So this is a good news story, not just for critically endangered right whales, but also for mariners who are eager to do um, the right thing. And certainly in our experience, uh, universally, they are. Uh, one, one great word in seconds to go about how fabulous this is. <laughs> Well, I, I would say um, that in contrast to generations of New Englanders who have used technology to find and kill whales through two centuries of commercial whaling, we're now harnessing 21st century technology to save them, and it's very exciting. Thank you so much. It is very exciting. We've been talking about an app to help save the right whale. I've been speaking with Patrick Ramage, the Whale Program Director at the International Fund for Animal Welfare. To keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show, you can... Uh, get in touch with us at wgbh.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter or become a fan of The Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show is engineered by Alan Mattis, produced by Chelsea Murrs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. We are a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.